We are wrapping up 2022. And as we do so, some folks are already thinking about next year, submitting their application for higher education, be it med school, grad school, public health school, or just preparing themselves for the following year. And doing all of that can be a stressful time. And actually, just finding yourself can be a bit stressful. It can take many years. I mean, for me, I've been um, trying to answer the question, but what will I do when I grow up for about 60 years now? One of these days, I'll figure this out. Welcome to Hentian Health, a podcast by the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture. I'm the Center's Director, David Hayes Bautista, the old Chicano professor. This podcast is an extension of the research we have been part of for many years. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of gente and health. Today's guest is Dr. Brenda Abarca who was born and raised in Julian, California, a rural community east of San Diego County. They probably call it Julian, I would imagine, uh, that, you know, typical here in California. She grew up in a tight-knit single-parent household with a younger sister. Then she completed her undergraduate degree in neuroscience with a minor in Spanish at UCLA in 2013, went on to UCLA School of Medicine, and is now doing her psychiatric residency at Harvard a UCLA hospital down in San Pedro, and I was born just around the corner from there. It's a hospital that no longer exists. While at UCLA, and when I first got to meet Brenda was when she was working with a CCM, Latino Chicanos for Community Medicine, a pre-medical organization for particularly for first-gen students, first-gen college, first-gen medicine, etc. And she was a student leader, particularly in the Latino Student Health Project while she was at CCM, and this cultivated her interest in medicine. She organized multiple health fairs and talks throughout Los Angeles, and by doing so, better understood the socioeconomic factors that impact her family and underserved communities. Dr. Barco was part of the following pipeline programs and was always eager to share what she learned on her path to medicine. The National Institutes for Health, NIH Biomedical Science Enrichment Program, UCLA, the Pre-Medical Pre-Dental Enrichment Program, the PrEP Program, the Summer Urban Health Fellowship at Harbor UCLA, and the UC Davis Post-Baccalaureate Program. When she's not studying books or involved in LMSA, the Latino Medical Student Association, you can find Brenda at the gym, running marathons, hiking, or hanging out with her sister and family. Brenda, welcome. It's so good to see you again after all these years. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Dr. Hazel-Lisa, for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, we're excited for you to be here. We always talk a lot about mental health, but we rarely have someone that we can talk with about mental health, particularly uh, at what it means to be a mental health professional. Perhaps maybe you could just give us a big um, bullet point definition for you. What do you understand when you say the word mental health? Can you just give us uh, share your thoughts with us? hundred percent. You know, this is a very, um, you know, broad question, especially as a psychiatrist. But overall, just like what I see mental health is, is, um, you know, when whether it's myself or people that I see, um, the patients that I serve, um, their mental health is just the holistic approach I take to see if they are able to live the best quality of life that they can, um, given like their psychosocial stressors. Uh, genetic loading um, and like family history 
Um, and if they can feel like they have control over like their emotions, their feelings, their behaviors, that way they can um, do things every day, uh, like their activities of daily living. Um, and maybe that's a very like technical definition, um, but I think it encompasses a little bit about of what I see across the spectrum. Why is it important to talk about mental health? Yeah, mental health is so important. And this is um, something that I even saw as an undergrad through volunteer work through Chicano's or community medicine. I remember doing um, a lot of health fairs and seeing a lot of chronic disease, such as diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. And sometimes among these patients, like a common theme was that they felt a very low mood, uh, very anxious about being in social settings, for example, and this impeded their ability to access care. Um, so at that point, my mind started thinking a lot about mental health. Like if you target this foundation, how people's health in other arenas can also improve, such as in chronic disease, what I just talked about. But in general, I feel like when we talk about mental health, it empowers individuals to um you know, reflect and become more aware about their own mental health. And I think it's the foundation for everything that we do. Mm -hmm. Amazing. In your residency, I'm sure you're learning teaming, et cetera. That's the biggest thing in graduate medical education. We practice in teams. So mm -hmm. in the area of mental health, who would be besides an MD psychiatrist, who else might be on the team that is working with a patient and family? Yeah. So it's very broad teams, like you said, and just takes like a, a village really to provide all the resources that individuals need. Um, we always look at the holistic approach, but on the teams, it's usually like uh, social workers, uh, which provide an array of services, some including therapy. And this is so valuable for patients, um, especially because in psychiatry, it's like well known that medication and the combination of therapy is ultimately um, what helps certain individuals the most. Um, additionally, we have like caseworkers that help more with um, supporting like the psychosocial stressors, such as like unstable housing and providing people with resources. Um, we also have very skilled nurses that um, help administer medication or like long acting injections. So it's um, an array of people, uh, sometimes including psychologists as well that will maybe do like neurocognitive evaluations or um, also provide like very specific types of therapy. Wow. That's a very big team. Mm -hmm, yeah. Well, as, as I mentioned, I was born down in the Harbor, raised in the city terrace, El Monte, East LA until mm -hmm. I was 10. Then we moved out and moved up to Northern California, a little tiny town. So the only thing I knew about psychiatrists is what I saw in movies, Hollywood movies, you know, Doris Day, Rock Hudson. And I, when I was a kid, had this idea that psychiatry is something that only rich people did that drove in convertibles uh, because normal people, I, nobody I knew had ever seen a psychiatrist. I didn't even know what one really was. Uh, it just seemed like something other people did. Uh, and now here you are one. So maybe could you just share with us your journey that got you to here? Uh, what happened in your life that stimulated you to go this way? Yeah, of course. You know, and I think it was, you know, kind of like the book Outliers. It's different things in your life that, you know, um, 
gradually come into play. And like, I'll start from like where I grew up. I grew up in a very small town, Julian. Um, I was like the big fish in the small pond. Um, and then I went to UCLA and that transition was pretty difficult to me going um, you know, to very prestigious school where um, it was challenging, especially as a Latina and learning like my study habits. Uh, but I was very lucky to have CCM, which was really supportive of my mental health and feeling um, included in that community. So from early on, I began to understand the importance of mental health. Um, and I saw the importance of it in the community as well through the health fairs. Um, I joined a lot of pipeline programs, which you mentioned earlier, which are extremely helpful, like PrEP, um, the Summer Urban Health Fellowship, which I recommend to everybody. Not only do you meet, meet amazing people, but it's people who support your mental health. They have similar values. So eventually in medical school, um, I did the my third year rotation, which is where you go for like a month or two to a hospital and you almost, you know, act like a psychiatrist and you get your own patients. And I got to see the amazing work that is done in psychiatry in the inpatient units. And additionally, I had amazing mentors such as Dr. Loveliner. She's working at the VA right now. And she took me under her wing and she allowed me to wash out of her um, in her outpatient, uh, with her outpatient patients. And it was a great experience. And since then, I felt like I was hooked. And I felt like in psychiatry for me, it, it wouldn't feel like I was um, like a day. Whenever I go into Harvard, for example, it doesn't feel like um, it's like a day at work. It feels like I am doing what I'm very passionate about. And that's why I think it's um, important for young adults in college to really think of all the career paths, because once you find something that you truly love, like it won't feel like, like work. That's where you want to be. <laughs> Okay, so now as you look back to where things were, um, what do you wish someone had told you when you were your first day on campus at UCLA that would have helped you if you had known that? What would you tell them? Yeah, I feel like if, um, you know, with my mentees or even if I saw my younger self, I would definitely... um, share the following pieces of advice. One, it's so important for you to get a mentor, somebody whose values resonate with your own because um, like subconsciously you'll start working to what they've accomplished in a way. Um, Additionally, I would say finding your group or your safe space where you feel like you can grow but at the same time challenge yourself. And I feel like that was CCM for me. She comes for community medicine where I um, had my very close-knit group of friends, but at the same time, I was doing things that I didn't realize I was capable of. So it built my confidence, and I felt like I was up for the task to apply to medical school and be a doctora in my community. Um, But I was in a space where people, you know, valued um, my beliefs. Wow. Let's go back to your pre-med years, your medical school years probably even your residency years. Uh, You're very busy, under a lot of pressure, you're taking exams, you have to master what seems to be a large body of knowledge. So how did you maintain your mental health through all of that? Could you just share that journey with us? Yeah, and that's always super important. 
you know, in whatever you're doing, like you said, medical school and undergrad can be super busy. I feel for me, something that really helped me out was staying physically active. That was my way of um, getting endorphins almost every day or so. Um, when I was an undergrad, I would run the perimeter pretty often, just run around campus or go to the gym. Um, and now that I'm in medical school and residency, same thing applies, going to the gym almost every other day. I also love to sign up for 5Ks, 10Ks, <laughs> smaller uh, little races. That way keeps you motivated to keep going to the gym. But it can definitely, um, it's all about habit formation. And I'm glad I created that habit about going to the gym earlier on. Because um, honestly, that's how I gauge how my own mental health is doing. Um, how many times I go to the gym per week. And obviously every week it won't be the same. Um, but I am kinder to myself if I know like I'm struggling a certain week. And that's kind of how I gauge it based on off my physical activity. Mm -hmm. One of the messages of ACGME, that's for graduate medical education, has been provider wellness. In fact, it's been added into the four pillars of uh, future health. There's now now we think about the gee, the provider should be well. Uh, have they talked about that much in your residency? Have any of your team members had to struggle with that? It, it can be an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think in psychiatry, very blessed to have um, a good balance of life and work. So um, I think it's already built into our curriculum, especially because of the things that, you know, the stories that we hear, the situations that we see our patients in sometimes can be very emotionally uh, challenging at times. Um, that's already automatically built in. But I do remember like our first year we, and even now we still have this process group and it began the first year of residency where we met maybe once a week and then like once a month um, with our fellow class. And we talked about everything that was on our mind. And it was a very therapeutic environment because we realized how much we all had in common, even though we didn't speak about certain experiences that happened, um, we all had it in common and it was very healing. Wow. Amazing. Yes. Uh, provider wellness, particularly during COVID. Could you talk, talk about, uh, you got in the tag end, but you started your residency in 2020, didn't you? Yeah. 2020. Yeah. Just when things were going, can you just describe that experience, particularly in terms of the mental health toll it was taking on providers at the time? Yeah, it was very, very difficult. And I did my internal medicine rotation um, during like the second or third wave of, of COVID, which was December 2020, when like the flu COVID were, and people were really sick. And after, um, you know, like the posadas with the family or getting together with family, a lot of people came in afterwards. Um, sadly, a lot of patients. And that was very challenging and um, demoralizing at times, to be honest. You know, sometimes you would have your list of 15 patients you were seeing. And then the next day when you came in, maybe it was just 10 patients. And you were like, what happened to my other five patients? And it's like, sometimes they just didn't make it. You know, um, things happened throughout the night. They're already in the ICU. So that was very challenging. Um, I was very happy, though, to work with the palliative care team um, at Harvard UCLA, where they really took the time to get to know the patients and their needs and the family members' needs. Um, and the youngest patient that passed away that um, I took care of was a 35-year-old uh, Latina 
with two children. Children were like seven and 12. And it was just really sad to see that they were, couldn't say goodbye to their mother. Um, and I feel like that was very touching. It's something that I'll always just think about and be at least grateful that I was able to be there for her during her care and at least facilitate that some type of communication between her and her family. Um, but I would say it was very difficult for all providers during that time, um, as well as I'm sure for the families that couldn't see their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, we're moving into, I guess, the more jaded of us would call stress season, Thanksgiving, the holidays, Christmas, New Year's, where family does get together. Yeah. And then family can fight or family can bring up old issues. I mean, you love to see family, but not always smooth sailing. And it's for just almost uninterrupted, basically, from just before Thanksgiving till Reyes Magos almost. Uh, and one of the things that, particularly if you're an undergrad, you're in medical school, and you may even get this as a psychiatrist, um, all these questions about, well, haven't you gone to school enough? Why are you studying so much? Uh, you know, when are you going to start having kids? You know, the things that family <laughs> always ask you. Uh, can you just give some advice about how to handle that with being honest, but not putting people off? Or Yeah. What would you suggest? Very important. I think just, you know, maybe, um, you know, it, it brings up, makes me think about boundaries and just, um, you know, maybe for going to family get togethers. Like, for example, I might tell my sister, like, hey, can you make sure you let mom know not to ask me these questions <laughs> or, you know, our aunt. Um, so boundaries are very important. And these are things that protect your own values. So once you have like the list of what your values are, kind of like how do you protect those values um, in a way where you're still honoring those values? Like I still strive to be very kind to all my family members, um, not being, you know, argumentative or rude, but um to stay true to myself and you know i don't want to be nobody wants to be stressed during the um, holiday get-togethers so boundaries is one way the other way i would say is like redirecting people um and this is a skill that we learn a lot very fast in psychiatry and like in mental health fields just maybe changing the topic and you'd be surprised people just go off (laughs) on the new tangents um but those are some simple easy ways um yeah Guess we have an easy redirect this year. What happened to the Dodgers? Oh my gosh! Yes, exactly. <laughs> you get all sorts of. Uh, you know, it's interesting. By the way, I, as you talk about non-traditional ways into medicine, like um, what I have heard all my life, the traditional ways: you go to a four-year, you graduate, go right on to medical school, go right on to residency, then you're out. And it seems like when I chat with a lot of Latinos is actually you started a community college and you probably don't finish in two years. It could be three or four or five, then to a four year. And it's again, not always done in two years. And then usually a, a gap year or two or three, and then some post back or something. And I'm beginning to understand, well, actually for Latinos, that is sort of the traditional, way, really, is how <laughs> most Latinos do it. It's called non-traditional, yeah. but maybe not for us. What's been your experience with your fellow students and residents on this? A hundred percent. So I would say like in medical school, most of um, the people in prime, which is prime is a special group within certain medical schools, especially in the UCs, 
which got funding to, um, you know, for physicians who were very invested in being in low resource communities and helping with prevention. Um, but basically with a lot of my peers from Prime and Charles Drew as well, I noticed that um, we were not traditional and at least half the medical school class in itself is not traditional. And that just means, you know, whether you did a post back like myself, for me, um, I can't imagine having had gone straight from undergrad to medical school. And, you know, maybe I could have, but for me, it was more than anything like the mindset. I wasn't there yet and I didn't have the confidence or necessarily like the study habits to transition to that yet. But after my postback, I felt very ready. Um, and one of my good friends too, Gabby, um, she did the same thing. So yeah, that's what I noticed a lot with a lot of my peers. Um, and in residency, it's, it's a mixed bag, to be honest. Um, you'd be surprised some people go all the way through, but I would say at least the fourth or a half still are non-traditional. And I think that adds so much richness when you do treat your patients because you do have that work experience or other experience rather than just like school um, or, you know, for the past like 12 years or so. Mm -hmm. So it, it is basically our tradition to be non-traditional. <laughs> but then if we do it, if most of us doing it, then that's our tradition. <laughs> wow. Amazing. So uh, you went directly from high school to UCLA. Mm -hmm. You had to leave family. Um, I imagine there were some members of the family saying, but why do you have to go so far away? Uh, so how do you suggest students undergoing that deal with it? Yeah, that was definitely um, a thing me and my mom discussed. At that time, she was manager for the restaurant. So she's like, I'm losing one of my waitresses. I'm like, mom, but I have to go study. I have to go, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, prepare. And, you know, four years seem like a long time, but they really fly by. Mm -hmm. And I would just say, um, be, assertive, be assertive and just remind your parents about what the end goal is. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, it's natural. Uh, us humans focus on the short term, but it's the long term mm -hmm. um, that we really have to strive for. Um, but most parents are pretty understanding. And, you know, maybe you guys can uh, come up with a way to go back and visit and have that talk, uh, that negotiation. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, as I see you moving ahead and I see Dr. Loveliner now taking a uh, very important position within the medical field, I'm kind of reminded of the distance that as a community we have traveled. And I'm reminded of uh, two people and two things. One, of course, is UCLA's founding forefather, a Latino, Reginaldo Francisco del Valle, bilingual, bicultural, who is dying day, uh, who helped set up this. Without him, we would not have UCLA. Uh, we would have probably UC Pasadena, because Pasadena wanted the campus. And somehow it just can't do the UC Pasadena. It just doesn't sound right. But it also reminds me of a, um, a physician, uh, a Latina. Her name was Doctora Virginia Payais. Mm -hmm. She was born in Brawley. Actually, her parents were Central American from Nicaragua, but she wound up being born in Brawley. And during World War II, uh, she actually went to school here at UCLA, undergraduate, 
and then went off to what is now UCSF. Back then, it was the Berkeley Medical School, UC Berkeley, but it's now UCSF. And this is very unusual. I mean, having a female Latina, first gen, uh, graduated from UCLA in the sciences in 1942, then off to UCSF, I'd have to check. She was probably one of two women, I'll bet, in her class, and probably the only Latina in years. Uh, and then she came back to LA to practice. And she first set up her practice, and she this was a meaningful, intentional step in the Lopez Adobe up in San Fernando Valley, if you're familiar with it. She had two sisters who um, sang in a mariachi and danced in a folklorico professionally. So she was very tied to her culture. Where I'm going with this is in 1963, she was elected by her fellow uh, staff, the first woman medical director of a hospital up at Providence Hospital up in the Valley. And she held that post for a number of years. I mean, that is talk about a journey. But as I see you and I see Dr. Lebliner, I'm thinking, yes, here's come the people, the women after Dr. Payais, and I feel like medicine's in very good hands, particularly in the psychiatry. We have you and Dr. Loveliner, two towers of power. Boy, there's all kinds of things we could do with that. So before we wind up, any last thoughts, um, things you'd like to share with our audience about yourself, your field, your profession, your experience? Mm -hmm. No, yeah, I definitely um, am so happy you invited me to come talk about mental health on this podcast. And I would just say anybody who's even like remotely interested in mental health, there's definitely so many avenues that you can check out. And obviously, I'm a little bit biased towards psychiatry. Um, I love the different things that we can do in the different settings. For example, um, I can go into an inpatient unit, the emergency room. I have my outpatient patients. And I can also go to the jails and do like competency exams. And these are things that I'm already doing on a daily basis and might do all four in one given day. So it's never a dull day um, in any field in the mental health field, really. So I would say if you guys have any questions, please feel free uh, to reach out to me. I love to take on mentees and um, any advice I can give you or anybody I can connect you with. Um, that's what I strive to do. All right. Okay. And I think you have really described a, a sort of an ideal situation for the STEMI people, science, pre-meds, for how CCM turned out to be an emotionally supportive pre-health community for you. And I, we hear this a lot, emotionally supportive. Um, and it helps, I find, it helps us deal with that double imposter syndrome because there's somebody we don't have to explain ourselves to. This, people just know they understand. This is uh, an amazing experience. Thank you so much, Dr. Abarca, for sharing it with us. We hope to have you back on this program more in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Hesotista and Seda and Giselle. I really appreciate you guys inviting me and organizing all of this. Well, that wraps us up for today. If you'd like to support us in our podcast, go to our website and click our quote-unquote support us button. Any and all contributions, money, food, we'll take it. Pizza are greatly appreciated. And it'll all help us continue our work with our podcast, with our research, our public service, and our educational activities. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you all for listening. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast if you have not yet done so. 
Our executive producers for this podcast are Adriana Valdez and Seda Santiso Greenwood. This episode was written by Seda Santiso Greenwood, Brandy Lopez, and Giselle Hernandez. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez. And music this week was provided by Mariachi de Uclatlan. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into the topics of Latino culture, gente, and health. Thank you.